Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon, and I'm here with my colleague, Patrick Myers. We're both attorneys with NFP's Benefits Compliance Team, and we're on the podcast to help break down the latest news and issues that are uh, impacting employee benefits plans. Today, Patrick, we are going to focus on the interim final rules administering the No Surprise Billing Act. And these rules were issued on July 1st. And so we're getting into uh, something very recent here. But Patrick, why don't we start by talking about the problems that these rules and the act really are trying to address? Thanks, Chase. Well, the act and the rules address situations wherein a person covered by a health plan receives services from providers who are not in the plan's network. The obvious circumstance, of course, is in an emergency situation when a patient is not likely in a position to make informed decisions about who is providing them medical care. However, it also can arise when patients receive services from out-of-network providers who provide services in in in-network facilities, where patients may have assumed that those services were covered much like their in-network services are covered. And in addition, then there's the kind of the corner case where uh, a patient may be delivered, taken to a hospital by an air ambulance. It's, a, it's also a circumstance uh, where this often arises. And, and in these circumstances, the out-of-network provider may bill the patient the difference between the amount that the provider charges for the service and the amount the health plan or in, insurer will pay for that service. And this is a practice that's often referred to as a balanced billing or surprise billing, because it can be a surprise to the patient these bills can be very expensive and uh, can come as a surprise. And because uh, these patients would might have figured that the health plan would have covered the services that they, they received in an emergency situation or otherwise. And the impact that these bills have on lower income patients, as well as people of color and rural patients, can be devastating. And these bills can be a source of medical debt that can lead to bankruptcy among those who are least able to pay those bills. And over half the states in the country have uh, passed laws designed to minimize or eliminate these surprise bills and provide protections for consumers and establish frameworks for determining the rates insurers and plans pay out of network providers in these situations. And when Congress passed its Consolidated Appropriations Act in December of 2020, it included a federal version of of these laws called the No Surprise Billing Act. And in addition for for establishing its own network or framework rather, the act requires the HSS, the DOL and the treasury to promulgate rules that expand upon it. And these interim rules that we got on the first are the first wave of these rules. Right, so yeah, like you're saying, nobody nobody likes a surprise. Nobody uh, wants to have huge unexpected bills and so all of this is kind of trying to address that and, and help consumers for the most part, right? And it kind of highlights a, a bigger problem in our healthcare system is that a lot of people just really don't understand what things cost, even when they're the ones that are involved. Um, I guess we can see, particularly when somebody 
doesn't have a, a, a choice, right? They are in an emergency situation. It seems like that's particularly unfair when it comes right. to seeing, but um, so really the, the paramount concern of the act and the rules is to protect the patient from these catastrophic bills, but that doesn't really change the fact that there's a cost associated here, right? Somebody has to pay these bills. That's right. Yeah, the, the act and the rules require plans and insurers to cover these services, regardless of whether the provider is in a network or out of network. Uh, surprise billing arrangements can put plans and uh, insurers in a bind too. Uh, after all, out of network providers may use this capacity of passing these costs on to patients as leverage in negotiations over the amounts the plans and the insurers will pay them. But so the, so the bulk of the rules focus on how insurers and plans pay these out-of-network providers in these situations. Okay, so before we get to that, what protections are given to patients under the act and, and, and these new- Well, in, in addition to the requirement that uh, plans and insurers cover these services, regardless of whether the provider is in-network or out-of-network, they require plans that provide or cover any benefits for emergency services to cover those services without any prior authorization and regardless of any other term or condition of the plan or coverage other than the exclusion or coordination of benefits or a permitted affiliation or rating period. So note that neither the act nor these rules require plans and insurers to cover these services just that these requirements have to be met if they do cover these services. The rules also prohibit balance billing for items and services covered under the act. Specifically, there can be no balance billing for those emergency services that we've been talking about, those air ambulance services that I mentioned earlier, and non-emergency services provided by out-of-network providers at in-network facilities in certain circumstances. Okay. Um, do the act and the rules impose any limits on how much patients pay for their share of these services? <laughs> they sure do. When it comes to the out-of-network services covered under the act, cost sharing that is greater than in-network levels is prohibited, and such cost sharing must count toward any in-network deductibles and out-of-pocket maximums. The rules provide a method by which plans determine how much a participant must contribute towards the services covered under the act. The amount will be determined in one of three ways. First, the plan must look to the applicable all-payer model agreement. Now, an all-payer model agreement is the agreement between CMS and a state that implements systems of all-payer payment reform for medical care services of residents of the state, which just means that it allows Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurers to pay the same price for services to hospitals in that state. Second, if there is no all-payer model agreement, and these model agreements are not in every state, only a handful of states have them right now. So if there is no all-payer agreement, the state then looks to uh, the state law. And if there's no state law or all-payer model agreement, then the plan must charge the lesser amount of either the bill charge or the qualifying payment amount, which is defined under the rules as generally speaking, the plan's median contracted rate. I should note that the um, qualifying payment amount is the primary method for determining the cost sharing amount for air ambulances. I see. Okay, so um, when we when you're talking and, and mentioning insurers and plans, who are we talking about exactly? 
Ah, well, the act and rules apply to group health plans as well as health insurers offering group or individual health coverage with plan or policy years beginning on or after January 1st of 2022. So this includes self-funded plans, non-federal governmental plans, such as state and local employee benefit plans, church plans, grandfathered plans, grandmothered plans, student health insurance, and insurers that offer coverage through the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program. Okay. Always good to square away who's actually responsible and always good to square away the date, right? You mentioned January 1st, 21, or sorry, 2022 plan years or policies beginning on or after that date. Indeed. How much does a plan or insurer pay out of network providers for providing these services? Well, the rules also provide plans with three methods for determining the amount they must pay out of network providers. Um, As described earlier, uh, the plan must first look to the applicable all-payer model agreement, and if no such agreement exists, then to the applicable state law. And if neither option is available, then the plan and the out-of-network provider must come to some agreement regarding the price. If they cannot agree, then they have to go through an informal dispute resolution process uh, to determine the amount. Uh, the agencies plan to issue additional rules describing that uh, resolution process at some future date. Now, note that in cases where the plan must pay the bill before the participant meets their deductible, the plan must pay the provider or facility the difference between the out-of-network rate and the cost-sharing amount. In an example provided by the interim rules, because this can be kind of a complicated concept, So the uh, interim rules uh, offer this example in which one assumes an individual is enrolled in a high deductible health plan with a $1,500 deductible and has not yet accumulated any costs towards the deductible at the time that that individual receives emergency services from an out-of-network facility. So in this example, the plan determines that the recognized amount for the services is $1,000. Because the individual has not satisfied the deductible, the individual's cost-sharing amount is $1,000, which accumulates towards the deductible. The out-of-network rate is subsequently determined to be $1,500. Under the requirements of the statute and these interim rules, the plan is required to pay the difference between the out-of-network rate and the cost-sharing amount. Therefore, the plan pays $500 for the emergency services, even though the individual has not satisfied the deductible. The individual's out-of-pocket costs are limited to the amount of cost-sharing originally calculated using the recognized amount, that is $1,000 in this case. Even though such payments would normally cause a high deductible plan to lose its status, it is important to note that the Act states that a plan will not fail to be treated as a high deductible health plan by reason of providing benefits pursuant to these, the act and these rules. Okay. So thanks for walking through that example. It's always good. I mean, my pen and paper here, writing down the numbers, sometimes we really need those examples to illustrate what we're talking about, right? Yes, that's right. I certainly do. <laughs> okay. So let's talk a little bit about state law because you, you mentioned that the act and the rules refer to state laws as a source for determining rates and obviously can be a challenge with 50 states out there, but what, what state laws 
do they mean when they, when they make that reference in the law and the rules? Right. I, we're referring in these in these cases, we're referring to those surprise billing laws that states have have already have already uh, promulgated. Uh, we mentioned these earlier. Uh, many of these laws include uh, payment dispute processes, as well as benchmarking rules and other methods for determining how much a plan or an insurer needs to pay providers for these emergency services. The idea here is that the federal framework will defer to these laws for fully insured plans with policies regulated by the states that have these surprise billing laws with these provisions within them. Of course, self-insured plans by and large won't be subject to those laws. Although it should be noted that several states do allow self-insured plans to opt into those dispute resolution processes. So we may expect some more federal regulation to kind of square those circles. Got it, okay. Other than, th than that sort of explicit reliance on state law to determine how much out-of-network providers will be paid, does the federal act and the rules, do, do those preempt state surprise billing laws? For the most part. Yeah, in addition to what we've already discussed, state laws will continue to apply to the extent that they offer greater protections than those provided at the federal level. You know, basic federalism stuff. You know, if the state provides greater protections, then those will still apply, even though the federal law typically will uh, uh, be first in line, so to speak. Uh, but it should also be noted that the federal rules and the act rely on the states to enforce many of those provisions that apply to fully insured plans. Mm -hmm. And the DOL will step in and enforce them as they apply to self-insured plans. Right. Okay. Are there other requirements imposed by the act and the rules that we should be aware of? And I'm kind of thinking, spoiler alert, there's some notice requirements, right? That's right. That's right. That's the, that's the second big, big thing here. Um, there, there are two different notice requirements uh, proposed in the act and in the rules. Uh, first, under certain circumstances, an out-of-network provider can provide notice to a person regarding potential out-of-network care. And if they provided that they obtained that person's written consent uh, for that care and to those extra costs, then uh, they, under those circumstances, some out-of-network providers can get around these restrictions uh, that are imposed by this, the act and these uh, rules. However, these don't apply to certain providers regardless of the circumstance. Think uh, providers such as uh, anesthesiologists and radiologists uh, don't have this uh, notice and consent safe harbor. You can call it a safe harbor for these, it won't apply to them. And there's a handful of others that are listed in the rules. Mm -hmm. Now, the second notice applies to uh, group health plans and health insurance issuers. And they are required to post a notice um, and it has to be publicly available and posted on a web, public website and included in, ex in explanations of benefits. It's a one pager and it provides information concerning requirements and prohibitions under the act and the applicable state balance billing limitations or prohibitions and contact information for appropriate state and federal agencies if somebody thinks that the provider or facility has violated the requirements as described in that notice. Great. And while we're clarifying, we keep using this term interim final rule, which I know is kind of a term for legal geeks and nerds like compliance people like us. 
So what, what is an interim final rule anyway? What does that mean? Well, the federal administrative law speak, an interim final rule is a rule that an agency promulgates when it finds that it has good cause to issue a final rule without first going through the proposed rule and comment process. As you, as you know, or, or may know, the, when, when an agency issues a rule, it first has to tell everyone that it's going to, to issue this rule, give, tell everybody what that rule, what they think that rule is gonna be, and then give everyone an opportunity to comment on that. Um, and then the agency considers those comments and then prepares a final rule based upon those comments and issues a final rule. And this can take uh, 60, 90 plus days, depending on the circumstances, before a final rule gets, gets actually gets published in the, in the federal register. But an interim final rule enables the agencies to issue that rule basically to jump over all of those hurdles, go ahead and issue that rule and say, we don't need to go for a proposed rule. We're gonna issue this as a final rule. Now, having said that, it's an interim final rule, which means that there is still a comment period and there it's still possible that this rule may be changed in light of any comments that they receive. So in this particular case, there's a 60-day comment period from the date that they're published in the register uh, in which people, interested people can and parties can make comments. And theoretically, it is possible that uh, these rules might change in light of those comments. Got it. So an expedited way to try and get a rule out and, and finalize it, but also allow for that comment period to get feedback, essentially. That's right. That's Great. right. Um, any other last thoughts on these surprise billing uh, rules? Well, I think at this point, I think we should mention that it's it's hard to estimate the impact of these rules in the act and what they'll have on the economics of the healthcare system. You know, we mentioned this at the very beginning, how um, these out of, out of these surprise bills can really have an impact not only on the patients who are the you know the obvious bearers of the burden but also on plans and issuers who then have to figure out how to pay these out-of-network providers. So, you know, and aside from the obvious relief that this uh, act and these rules can give to patients, um, there may be impacts on premiums paid for medical coverage, as well as on rates for services paid by plans and issuers to providers, both in and out of network. Uh, these are just the first wave of rules. I've mentioned earlier that uh, we expect some rules on the informal dispute resolution process that is uh, acquired under the act. Um, we may see even more rules come out and we may see several waves of these come out before the end of the year since it is supposed to be effective on plans issued on or, or after January 1st, 2022. All right. So should be an interesting couple months ahead of us, um, but at least we do have those months in front of us before it takes effect to kind of Indeed. allow plans and insurers to test this. We'll continue to monitor that, of course. But thanks, Patrick, for walking us through this today. Thanks, everybody, for listening and for joining us. As we like to say on the podcast, Patrick, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. All right. Bye, everyone. Have a good, have a good day, everyone.